Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Rihanna Gunn-Wright. I sat down with her in Washington, D.C., pre-quarantine and before the killing of George Floyd, and we had a fascinating conversation. While today's conversation and others like it will be critical as we think about how to build a more equitable future, we have many other relevant podcast episodes for deepening our understanding of anti-racism, privilege, and trauma. We also have a note from our editors on the Goop site about all the ways to get involved. Before we get to my conversation with Rihanna, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Dr. Sheffield's who helped make today's episode possible. Yes, we know, brushing our teeth is important, even though my kids don't quite believe me yet. It matters what kind of toothbrush you have, and it really matters what kind of toothpaste you're using. Dr. Sheffield invented and started making toothpaste in the 1870s. He was the first one to put it in a tube. Today, Dr. Sheffield's certified natural toothpaste is SLS-free and made without harmful bleaching agents, fluoride, or artificial preservatives. It's also certified by the Natural Products Association. But that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice taste or texture. Their toothpaste comes in eight different flavors, including ones for kids like strawberry, banana, mixed berry, and chocolate. I'm learning with my boys that toothpaste flavor is a major selling point. To learn more about Dr. Sheffield's certified natural toothpaste, head to drsheffieldsnaturals.com. It's also available at any major retailer like CVS and Walgreens. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Rihanna Gunwright is the Director of Climate Policy at Roosevelt Institute, and before that, she was the Policy Director for New Consensus. Her work has been focused on developing the Green New Deal. Today, we break down everything the Green New Deal entails, and Rihanna explains that you cannot have a conversation about the climate without talking about environmental racism and creating a plan that is built around equality as its primary guiding light. She explains what barriers occur when poverty intersects with race, and that creating millions of jobs is one thing, but how do you make sure everyone has access to those jobs? We talk about her thinking and strategy plan for the development and execution of the Green New Deal. Rihanna explains that at the center of it all is justice and equality, and that once you decide no person is expendable and no community is expendable, it will change how you solve problems. As Rihanna puts it best, the price of progress cannot be a person. Other people will tell you that there's no barriers to getting that job. So if you aren't actually thinking about that when you are designing the vision, right, when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, then you will not see that. It's much harder to see that later because equity doesn't happen on accident. You don't bump into it. You create it. Let's get to my conversation with Rihanna Gunn-Wright. So let's talk about the Green New Deal. Yeah. Your baby. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) that I've always struggled with that. Not not that it being my baby, but we just live in a world where ever, where so many of our narratives are like, it was a lone genius who right. walked into the night and like had an idea and burst into the world. But it was a really collaborative effort, and my role was scoping it. Like when I came on board, and this was before the sit-in in the at Pelosi's office. I was brought on to to help develop the Green New Deal at a new think tank called New Consensus. 
And other than a World War II style mobilization for climate, we didn't actually know what that was. And we didn't know how do you, and an economic mobilization is a just a fancy way of saying, instead of relying on markets, we rely on public investment, right? Yeah. We, and we actually use the economy, particularly the consumer economy, to turn the entire economy in a different direction. Yeah. Right. And to uh, change the industries that we participate in, like to change the jobs that we do. And and what sets it apart is that it's like a concentrated effort. Often when you're changing an economy, it happens gradually over years. And, and it's much more of an effort to like change the economy all at once. Yeah. Right. Through coordinated policy, through coordinated initiatives, through deep levels of partnership between public and private and federal, state, and local. So basically the opposite of neoliberalism right. <laughs> is essentially what it was. And so, but we didn't actually know how do you, if you're going to use that sort of model, how do you use it to reduce emissions? What do you, what sectors do you need to work on? And particularly we knew that it would always have justice and equity at the center. So how do you design these things to have more equitable outcomes, to, in fact, help dismantle things like environmental racism, mm -hmm. racism more broadly. And also, when you are talking about transforming an economy, you inherently run up against a lot of the inequities in the system. So if you're talking about creating a lot of green jobs, a lot of that could be in trades, how are you going to get women Right. And then we know that women participate in trades at lower levels. So what are the barriers there? How do you actually allow that to happen? You just inherently have to deal. How do you, if you're going to create millions of jobs, how do you make sure people who might not have had the best education have access to those jobs, right? How do you make sure that folks who have left prison yeah. have access to those jobs? And so we were, we had to figure out how do these all fit together? How do we tell a story about it that makes sense to people? Like, how do we message it? And how, in fact, do you decarbonize with equity at the center? Because a lot of decarbonization policy, just a lot of climate policy, mainstream climate policy that come to the fore, people have been, environmental justice movement have been talking about these connections for a really long time. Yep. But a lot of the mainstream didn't think about equity, or it was a second thought, right? right. And so a lot of the solutions that we would that people will point to of how do we decarbonize, that actually won't get you a more just economy. Mm -hmm. It'll get you the same economy with less carbon. Right. <laughs> so. Right. And, you know, as you mentioned, we have more, there are more people who have been incarcerated than there are people who have college degrees at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, and we have this massive you know, dying. There's no middle class, obviously, or disappearing middle class. Right. More and more families falling into poverty. Right. And it is a race issue first, a class issue second. It's a gender issue. Yeah. It's a disability issue. It's, I mean, we're also even talking about how do we, how do we help trans folks get these jobs, right? Because yeah. that's another barrier, especially if you're talking about maybe doing a more sort of stereotypical trade, yeah. right? How do how do we make sure that mm -hmm. trans folks have access to that? How do we make make it possible for them to, you know, to get training, to enter? And so mm -hmm. there's just a lot of things that inherently come up because when you I think we often think of economies as things that are sort of self-perpetuating systems that mm -hmm. exist outside of us and just like go and go. And we also think of them as natural. Whatever economy we have right now is just, that is that is what an economy is. Right. You know, but the fact is that like it's designed, right? Mm -hmm. The reason some people get certain types of jobs more than other people, that's a, that's a matter of history. It's a matter of law. It's a matter of the sorts of leadership that's allowed in those spaces. It's a matter of the incentives in those spaces. And so if that is going on, you just essentially, you never get out of those questions. And so if you're trying to lead an economic mobilization, 
there is no not dealing with those questions. Not right. dealing with those questions is dealing with those questions. Yeah. Right? It just means whatever we got is what we're going to have. Mm-hmm. And so there was people, because people often ask, why are you thinking about equity? Well, there's no way not to. Right. Unless you're saying all of the inequities that we have now, we don't mind them right. continuing to exist. Right. And as you said, we think about the economy as this natural thing. It's, But it is just what it is is self-perpetuating, right? So you're just grinding people into these levels of poverty. All these fence line communities are suffering yeah. the most from environmental degradation and pollution. Right. And then you think about the impacts of that on IQ, on opportunity. I mean, just like the evidence of lead yeah. in communities of color and what that does to those Kids. Yeah, I definitely ate lead paint as a child. Did you? I did. Wow. Um, that sounds so dark. Oh, I'm so sorry. My grandmother's going to be like, don't tell people that. But the truth was that there was an older house next door. And, and I tell this story because it's like a fairly normal story, yeah. I think, in a lot of cities where housing stock is old. Right. Uh, And where people don't have the money to upgrade the housing. Mm -hmm. Right. And where people don't have the money to if they're renting out a place to repaint it or they might not remember when it was last painted. They might think the paint was fine. So essentially it was like an older building next door. And I used to like to eat the paint. It's well, because it's sweet. It's yeah. sweet. It was sweet. sweet. I was a kid. Yeah. And I told my grandmother, and she actually owned the building, and I don't think she knew there was lead paint anywhere around anymore. Yeah. I think she had thought she had got rid of all of it. And I told her, and she was like, oh, no, do not eat those paint chips anymore. And she, like, repainted it the next yeah. day. Right? But but that stuff happens. Like, yeah. I was in Detroit. Most of the housing stock there is old. That's where I worked um, for the last two and a half years. And... That stuff affects children in ways, and it shows up down the line. And the worst part is it's a prop, you know, the effects of lead, whether that's, you know, decreased cognitive function or uh, difficulty dealing with anger. Like, those things manifest. Those kids get in trouble at school. Maybe they enter the school-to-prison pipeline. And it's not to say lead is the only thing, but it is a factor. And the saddest thing is it becomes an individual problem when it was actually a systemic problem totally. to start out with. Right. And so many, you know, industrial sites, et cetera, toxic waste dumps, like yeah. those are put on reservations. They're in they're always placed in marginalized communities. Yeah. You know, they're not in the middle of Brentwood, which is where I live in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so we don't and it's it's one of those things we'll never really understand the impact. Yeah. But there's certainly impact and, and then you look at those communities and, and this affects poor whites as well, but like this these communities in complete decline. There's no jobs. They can't there's no education. Right. Or there or there is and people are working really hard, right, to even to make the best of the education that is there to help the area economically develop. But the fact is that poverty, particularly when poverty intersects with race, it creates such mm-hmm. barriers. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Green New Deal takes equity so seriously is because the barriers to participating, even if, say, there's an explosion of a million jobs, if you are poor, the barriers to you getting that job, particularly if you're poor and black or Latino and And have a record and have a record or you're undocumented, right? Though the barriers to accessing what people will tell you is just open, and if you don't take it, it's your fault, is actually, in fact, not open. Just like I talk to one thing that's the Green New Deal resolution advocates for universal health care. And a lot of people, after it came out, and we're talking about people who worked on climate forever, like, why is health care in this? Why would you do something like this? But the fact is, so say, like... um, the two biggest uh, Green New Deal plans from presidential candidates propose that they will create 10 to like upwards of 10 million jobs, right? Upwards of 10 million jobs. And and the, like the Senator Sanders and Senator Warren plans. And, and a lot of those jobs, though, will be dispersed across the country, right? Because when, say, even just transitioning to renewable energy, the sp- the spaces where you want to generate large quantities of energy 
are now going to be dispersed around the country. You have high sun in the southwest. You might Mm -hmm. want a lot of solar. You can do offshore wind off the east coast, Rhode Island, et cetera, right? And so, but to build those things, you will need people, right? And this is just one example. Other jobs will not necessarily be so spread out. But the fact is, how can people move for those jobs, one, if their health care is attached to their employer? Mm -hmm. And then two, if you're on Medicaid, Right. Medicaid has asset limits. You cannot earn or have assets above a pretty nominal amount and still have Medicaid. And there's lots of people talk about the downsides to Medicaid a lot and they are real. But the fact is, if you have a chronic condition, Medicaid is the best health insurance you can have unless you can get gold plated health insurance, which most people can't Mm -hmm. on the private market. And so if you are someone, you know, with a chronic condition or your child has a chronic condition, you can't take that job Mm -hmm. unless that job has really good health care. Right. Right. And so, in fact, but you will be told, right, and the public and other people will tell you that there's no barriers to getting that job. So if you are actually thinking about that when you are designing the vision, right, when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, then you will not see that, it's much harder to see that later because equity doesn't happen on accident. You don't bump into it. You create it. Yeah. So when you, is the idea then the Green New Deal sort of like this, and I know many conservatives, you know, call it like a a fantasy, right? And many, I'm sure, meaner things. But is the idea (laughs) that you can sort of take this and pass it to whoever might emerge and say, like, this is the ideal. Like, let's go for the idea. I don't know why we have so much aversion to sort of, like, let's just go big. Yeah. I don't know why that's... Well, it's been... I mean, part of it is that it's been a con... A concerted effort. Uh, So it's also, it's really, I always think it's really interesting when conservatives say that it's a fantasy because since the sort of creation of the neoliberal movement, which was a conservative push, uh, which started like after the New Deal when a lot of business people were like, nope, Mm -hmm. don't like it, not a fan, right? It has been a concerted effort to sort of build a neoliberal, market-first, conservative ideology, because that's not always what we had, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about the New Deal and after, there was a big belief in public investment uh, and Keynesian economics, sort of, which is part of that is that the government should pick up the slack in the business cycle. That's the role. There was a, a commitment to full employment. It was just a very different set of beliefs about what is natural, and right. what should be. And and in like particularly in the neoliberal sort of movement really heated up, you know, fifties, sixties, but in about half a century they have dramatically changed the way that we do government. Mm-hmm. Right. The way that we do regulatory processes, the ways that we allow the first questions now that we ask is how much will it cost? Right. How much will it cost? What's the role of the market? Does this protect the market, right? We have unlimited uh, money going into politics. All of this was a, a campaign over time. And one of the things that was part, like a key um, sort of tenet of neoliberalism is the government can't do stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The government is there to correct for market failures. When the market cannot do government can do. But in all other conditions, government should do the very least it could do because that is freedom, Mm -hmm. right? That enables maximum freedom. So it's really, to me, it's like, why would people think that you could do more when most people have been inculcated over the last 50 years to say, why go big? Government, every time government goes big, it's a disaster. Right. Which isn't true historically. But if that's what you hear over and over and over, and also every time the government does do something big and it doesn't go great, which everything doesn't go well all the time, obviously, it's like blast it, right? Like we're talking now about people want more innovation, right? How do we, what what are the breakthrough technologies around carbon and emissions, like, Mm -hmm. what can we do? And the fact is that 
to get those breakthrough technologies, you have to invest at the early stages, right? And, but after Solyndra, which people who don't even know what solar panels are can tell you what Solyndra is and that the government failed, Mm -hmm. right? And that was one, that was literally one grant and a package of grants that had a lot more, or investment, that was one investment in a package that had a lot more investments that were successful. But now there's a generation of politicians who are afraid to invest in green technology because what about Solyndra? Right. And so it's not really super surprising. But in terms of the Green New Deal, the hope is that, yeah, that we as a collection of movements, as a collection of like policy thinkers can help develop, can develop specific policies and proposals to um, support an incoming administration to do these things because the other we don't have unlimited time. Right. That's no. the other thing with yeah. climate is that the time frame to avoid some catastrophic outcomes that we cannot roll back is closing. Yeah. And it's closing more rapidly than we think. Like the last assessment was 11 years, the IPCC report last year. Well, one, we're down a year. And then two, we're still finding out about feedback loops that we don't know about. And also as things continue, right, as ice sheets melt and release intense amounts of methane, which have a bigger impact. I think methane's like, I'm going to get it wrong. I was about to say four times, but it could be like even more four times the impact of carbon. So, like, this is a really potent greenhouse gas. And, like, as the earth warms and the ice sheets melt, they release methane. Right. Right. It just perpetuates. Yeah. yeah those feedback cycles are right. very extreme. And we don't, yeah, we don't understand. We don't fully understand. We know that the hotter the ocean gets, the less, you know, it can absorb heat, the mm-hmm. hotter the world gets, right, as, as ocean acidification continues. So there's, like, all of these feedback loops. So people often ask me, like, well, after 10 years, is it all a wash? It's like, no, right? Every bit of improvement is good. But there are, not cliffs, but there are points where if we don't stop it before, then we can't go back. Yeah. Or it would be much, much, much harder to reduce emissions down to a level where those things aren't happening. Right. And it's just such a different, I think, orientation to to change. Uh, a friend of mine, Bracken Hendricks, who I work with, talks about how part of what is tough for people to wrap their minds around in climate is that Often, if you don't do nothing, the status quo continues, right? right? That's how most people make decisions. If I don't do anything, what's going to happen is going to continue. And it's a very different orientation to say, if I don't do anything, things will get worse rapidly. Right. And we just can't really wrap our heads around that. We're like, that can't be true. If I stop walking, I'm just in the same space. I don't. There's not a cavern that, like, widens around me and then I fall into it. Right. <laughs> and that's we're much more of the former or the latter than the former. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that sort of what's the responsibility or role of the individual and sort of this whole American mythology that, like, as individuals, well, if I'm poor and I end up in jail, like, I fucked up. Yeah. And then the same way with climate change, like, what power do I have? It's, it's sort of... a shifting of consciousness away from these are these are individual actions to like this is a collective cyclical complex community that we live in yeah and we are we have to do this together yeah um and that these things yes there's there's personal responsibility sure to a point yeah and only to a point to a point honestly yeah because most of the emitters are Giant corporations. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and, and all the U.S. and China. I mean, we're, like, screwing the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In terms of – and the thing is, so that 11 years timeline, so there's fair share accounting. It is essentially people who emit more carbon or have historically have to do more. So if you're actually talking about fair share, yeah. the U.S., our timeline is far shorter than the rest of the world. Right. And it should be, right? Yeah. We have more resources. We have done a lot of the emitting, and we are responsible for the things that we have done. And every moment that we extend, we're actually taking from 
someone else. Yeah. Right? The more time we spend, we're essentially saying, okay, island nations, like, sorry, whatever comes your way, honey. But yeah. we, 2050, in our political world, whew, we can't do it any faster. Right? You're talking, we're talking about our political reality as though it doesn't affect other people's material lives. We'll get back to Rihanna Gunn-Wright in just a second. Our editorial and product development teams like to stay in the know when it comes to which clean products are best. And at home, I try to prioritize ways I can further detox and clean things up. Dr. Sheffield's certified natural toothpaste contains no synthetic detergents, foaming agents, harmful bleaching agents, or artificial preservatives. It's also certified by the Natural Products Association. And fun fact, their toothpaste formula is still made from Dr. Sheffield's original notebooks and recipes from the 1870s. On the same site, Dr. Sheffield invented toothpaste. They don't sacrifice taste or texture. It comes in eight different flavors, including natural peppermint, cinnamon, sensitive care, and extra whitening. To learn more about Dr. Sheffield's certified natural toothpaste, head to drsheffieldsnaturals.com. It's also available at any major retailer like CVS or Walgreens. Over the past several years, we've held eight intensive in-person wellness summits called InGoop Health. They have been some of my favorite days. If you've ever attended one, you know how fun they are and how goopy they get, and also that they are highly produced affairs. The team pays attention to every single detail. And the gift bag at the end of the day is legendary. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the community that has formed around InGoop Health, full of people who want to connect more deeply with themselves, the people in their lives, and the world around them. Right now, this community feels more important than ever. And for a long time, we've wanted to find a way to make it and the spirit of InGoop Health more accessible to people wherever they're at. So we've decided to host a digital series of InGoop Health sessions. Each Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time, me or GP will kick off a one-hour wellness session with an expert we admire. We'll cover spirituality workshops, more intimate conversations, workout classes, and practical effective takeaway tools for navigating this time. The sessions will be live streamed on YouTube initially and they are free to join. If you can, we hope you'll consider making a donation to Doctors Without Borders. I can't wait for our next session on Wednesday, June 10th. Gwyneth is hosting with Eddie Stern. Eddie is an Ashtanga yoga teacher, lecturer, and a dear friend of Gwyneth's. Eddie will lead us through breath work designed to help us de-stress and focus, 30 minutes of Ashtanga yoga, and a short closing meditation. You're in for a real treat. Eddie is one of a kind. And if you enjoy the session, we hope you'll make a donation to NAACP. Back to my chat with Rihanna Gunwright. So 2050, that's the goal. So sort of take us through, like, the five goals. Of the uh, Green New Deal. Yeah, the Green New Deal. <sighs> this, right. is, this is good because it's in the resolution, <laughs> and I always uh, forget. So the five goals of the Green New Deal are to—oh, yes, please. Is there I'll a cheat sheet? <laughs> I know. I feel so bad. People are like, what's in it? I'm like, girl, I've read it so many times I don't remember any parts of it. So it's to achieve uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition, create millions of good high-wage jobs. Uh, and by good jobs, we mean jobs with, like, union protections. Yep. We mean secure jobs, not— precarious labor that we have now. And right. I say that because unemployment numbers are low and people are excited about that. But unemployment doesn't capture the quality of right. a job. It doesn't capture how precarious it is. It doesn't capture if it's temporary. It doesn't capture if it's a gig job. Right. It doesn't um, capture if it's minimum wage. And it doesn't capture any of that. Poverty. Yeah. yeah. And green jobs are not necessarily good jobs, right? Because no job is inherently a good, stable job. You make it that way, or there are protections that require it to be that way. Investing in infrastructure and industry of the United States to sustainably meet the challenges of the 21st century, securing clean air, clean water, climate and community resilience, healthy food, access to nature. So this is essentially about remembering that the environment is bigger than emissions. Yeah. Right? It's about clean air, clean water. It's about 
the physical environment that people live in. Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy to talk about decarbonization and not talk about environmental racism. Right. Because there, there, there is a version of sort of tackling climate change that doesn't say, in fact, petrochemicals in the Gulf Coast cannot keep creating cancer clusters. Right. Exactly. Right. You cannot continue to do that. And and so that is about recognizing that and then promote justice and equity by stopping. This is I think this I love this one. Straight fire. Um, promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future and repairing historic oppression, mm-hmm. which is a recognition for us. That's really when when that was sort of a principle that we were working on, and I didn't write the resolution that came from AOC and Senator Markey's office. They did a great job. And but so one of the principles that we all sort of, as we were developing the Green New Deal, agreed to was that the price of progress cannot be a person mm. or another person's pain. Because historically in the US, progress has meant exploitation of someone, and usually people of color, right, yeah. and women and na- indigenous folks. And and that isn't to us, and because a lot of the creators of the Green New Deal come from those communities. So for us, it wasn't really progress. It's not to say, you know, like, yes, World War II mobilization did raise wages for African-American workers. Yes, the New Deal did open up some things, but the fact is we also live with the legacy of everything mm-hmm. that we didn't get, right? Totally. That And so we just, and we just really wanted to see that when if you keep a commitment to equity at the center, how does that change the solutions that you come up with? Because often people say, you know, well, you have to make those compromises. Maybe, but often we, since we didn't make that commitment, we didn't create, we didn't look at solutions that didn't allow that, right? If you say no one can be, no one is expendable, no person is expendable, no community is expendable, that changes how you solve problems. Of course. And when you think about cost and... Because, you know, there's always this this overstatement of costs for instituting programs that then invariably end up being not only far cheaper, but then the savings. Like you think about the impact of all of these, you know, going back to lead or other contaminants and what that's done to we can just talk about Flint, right? Like the, those communities of color in terms of their ability to succeed at school get good jobs. To attract businesses, to economically develop a community that could use new new jobs and industries. Who wants to come into a place with poison water? Exactly. And then you think about, I'm reading Tightrope by Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Rudon, and they, one of the towns that they look at is his hometown in Oregon, and just the the number of kids that he went to school with who have died, fallen into meth, opioids, mm-hmm. no good jobs. You know, these are people whose parents had union jobs, were, were climbing out of poverty into the middle class and didn't necessarily have a high school education, but, were, but still had opportunity. Yeah. And, and that book, I think, paints a really compelling picture for for the cost of what's happening yeah. throughout the country. I mean, as as the middle falls out and we have, is it the three wealthiest, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett have more wealth than like yeah. the 50% of the people in this country? Yeah. I was just, someone just, like, I saw it on Twitter, so I didn't fact check it. But someone, I guess someone did some math and we're like, if you got $7,000, was it every day since the pyramids were created, you still wouldn't have as much money as Jeff Bezos? Yeah. Which is, why? 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 Yeah. Literally, and that's the question that I think motivated, I mean, motivates me personally, and I think motivated a lot of the work on the Green New Deal was, what, why? Why? Are some people allowed to amass so much more than you can use in yeah. a thousand lifetimes, right? While other people are allowed to struggle, what is it possible to try to fashion an economy where 
that doesn't happen, which we know it is mm-hmm. possible. But more than that, essentially, I guess the question that we were circling around was like, if you take a more communal view, what is possible? How yeah. does that relieve pressure on what you have to do personally? Yeah. How does that make people feel like there's less scarcity? How does, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and it also, you know, it when you think about, I think we particularly, you know, privileged white people, we want to believe that, you know, we grew up in this meritocracy and we, you know, we did it. Like we we built this, we created this. And then, you know, it's a, obviously a fallacy of, you know, this country built first on genocide, then on slavery. slavery. We you think about the environmental devastation in terms of people's personal health or ability to succeed or access to opportunity. And sure, like there are, of course, there are people who succeed despite all odds in this country who then we hold up as sort of like an example of like, why aren't all of you dilettantes doing the same thing? And of course, there are people who take advantage of government programs. Sure. But like, that that's somehow that somehow most, we think it's fair or right when white people do it right because yeah. if you think about like say the housing loans that came out of the GI bill 98% of those loans went to white people that was essentially just welfare for white people mm-hmm. right but we don't consider that welfare right we don't think about the ways that most actually tax credits benefit upper middle class white folks. The way that our tax system is set up benefits the wealthiest folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, upper middle class folks get hit in different in some ways, but you know, whether it's like a homeowner's tax credit or whatever, the, our system actually quietly benefits white people in particular in ways that we never call that assistance. We never call mm-hmm. that help. We just call that natural. Right. Or earned. Or earned, right? And it's funny that you mention, like, exceptions being picked up because I have worried, especially after the Green New Deal sort of got traction and more attention, I have worried about people holding me up as an exception. I come from Inglewood in Chicago, and which is now mostly known for gang violence, uh, as one of the poorest parts of the city. My family had lived there by the time I was born, had been in the house for almost 40 years. Now that house has been in our house, in our family for almost 70 years. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with a lot of people who are now in jail, mm-hmm. working minimum wage jobs, you know, struggling to, to afford childcare because they work at minimum wage jobs, right, who do not have the life that I have. And they were just as smart, right? Mm -hmm. They, but, you know, for various reasons, mostly structural, right? Overwhelmingly structural. And so I have never wanted to be an exception because, yeah, I made, you know, I'm in a different space. I've had some success. But to say that it was all because I earned it is complete bullshit. And Mm -hmm. the fact is that it shouldn't be the Hunger Games to build a decent life. Right. Which is what if (laughs) it had truly felt like getting to where I got to, it feels like the Hunger Games. Yeah. You know, like I was a tribute and my community rallied around me in ways to like make sure that if one of us made it, like I was going to make it. Yeah. And then to be held up as an example of like, see, see, now you can do it. And it's like, that is complete and total and utter. And I am not that sorry to curse, but there's no other way to say it. It is bullshit. Yeah. They are valuable people. They are the people who made me who I am. And and it's also horrible for the people that are held up as exceptions. Yeah. Like the amount of survivor's guilt that you have, the mm. the things that you sacrifice, the ways that you can't connect with the people that you used to grow up with because they're there and now you're here and it's hard to translate and it's it's lonely and you're constantly traversing spaces where people aren't sure why you're there, aren't sure if you should be there, mm-hmm. um, tell you they believe you should be there but truly think that you didn't earn it the way that they did, right? Spaces that success means how well do you adapt to this, not how well do we change to meet you. Yeah. It's horrible. 
Yeah. It's horrible. It's a, it's a, and it, and I say that just to say it's, it doesn't work for anybody. Right. At all. And we just like cannot continue to go forward this way. Yeah. I mean, theoretically it works for what, like the top one percent but then you even you look at what's happening in this country and like the epidemics of loneliness depression yeah um like people are getting what they think that they want at those levels to only to find that it's empty yeah and like the the things that you have to do to sustain it yeah to sustain that level of of Success, and I don't say that because you know I think successful people are better. It's not that. It's just it's more that success in this country is is defined by a type of relentlessness mm-hmm. that doesn't allow you to be fully human. Yeah, you should not rest. Right, you should not rest. You should be connected. You should be responsive all the time, and especially for women, you're supposed to do all that while also weighing three pounds mm-hmm. and eating air and kale. And going to bar class, which is just yoga, but worse. <laughs> um, it is just like bar class is like, let's just make all female neuroses into a workout. We're just like going to work really hard, but move very little. I feel very passionate about this because I just went to a bar class uh, with my friend. I'm like, why is this is oppression as a workout? And it's just so suffocating. But we yeah. don't care about, I shouldn't say we don't, but... The narratives don't capture that. We don't capture how many people do, you know, take prescription medication just to make it through the day. Yeah. And, like, I entered recovery for an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. like, five months ago. And so much had to do with, like, trying to just keep it together to be successful Mm. without ever asking what does that mean. Yeah. And so for me, a lot of the Green New Deal sounds really fuzzy and sometimes woo-woo. It is about climate. It is about transforming our economy. But at its core, it's about trying to make America a country where there's where it's easier to be the best version of yourself. Yeah. Right? Where it's easier um, to feel respected as a human to be to have a country that tells you that you're valuable instead of you're only valuable if you earn this much money or right. if you look this way or and you know and it, and those are big lofty goals right and it won't happen through the green new deal alone no illusions about that but the fact is we already are in a place where there's so much feelings of there's just so many feelings of scarcity there's never enough you never have enough money right you never you have to compete for everything. And that's partially because we live in a country where you do. Everything's on the market. If you can't buy it, you don't, you don't get it. Healthcare, you can't buy it, you don't get it. Good education, you can't buy it, you don't Water. get it. Water, you can't live in a good enough place, you don't get it. Right? If you cannot afford it, you don't get it. And we're just heading into a much more resource-constrained world. And it's that sort of mindset plus actual resource scarcity, it's already causing conflicts in other parts of the country or in other parts of the world, Yeah, right? I was just watching a video that I'm not going to say the lake because I'll probably get the name wrong, but one of the lakes in Africa in the last 10 years, 90% of the water has evaporated. Mm. I think it was something like tens of millions of people rely on that. And so now there's way more conflict. Yeah. Over because it's shrinking. The amount of water shrinking. There's still, you know, fields that need to be watered. There's still agriculture that needs to happen. There's still communities that need to live. And so if we aren't making that easier to deal with, if we aren't making it easier to live in a resource-constrained world, then we are not doing our duty. Yeah. Right. It's just we have to try to be a best version of ourselves for what is heading our way. And it's also it's like trying to balance that the fear and anxiety that that just like the very idea of it stokes like resource constriction. Right. With 
another what I think is a, the other myth of scarcity, and I think it goes to what we were saying about like Jeff Bezos or getting to the point of feeling like, okay, I have enough. Like, like how yeah. do we just get to a point collectively where we feel like my needs are met and anything more than this is not actually going to exactly. make me happier? Because isn't it like exactly. all yeah. the research is that essentially if you can meet people's basic needs and whether that's through like a universal basic income or whatever that might be, their happiness doesn't change as they accumulate right. more. Right. Uh, a f- another colleague of mine, Daniel Aldana Cohen, talks about switching from what does he call it? Public, what, switching from private necessity and public luxury to public necessity. I'm, I'm getting that wrong. Either way, the idea is essentially <laughs> that right now you have to buy everything, and it yeah. creates intense pressure. And if you want a pool or something, if you want anything nice, you much less the basics, you have to go out and get it. And the public sector is just there to, like, um, do the bare minimum. But if you switch it, right, if there are beautiful public parks with pristine community pools, if there is more public luxury plus the public meeting the necessity, what kind of space does that create for people, mm-hmm. right? When all of a sudden what you are earning, yes, it helps you live, but you don't have to work so hard because some of the things that you need as a basic human are met yeah right and how can that change the decisions that we make politically right how does that change the ways that we you know want government to function allow government to function what is that just like how does that change who we are and how we operate as a society totally if there was some sort of just safety net right is that an antidote to the feeling that we all have which I think is universal. Maybe it's just my own anxiety, and but I don't know. But that we need to stockpile, right? That like there is no, you know, there are no pensions. There's no one to catch you when you get sick. There's no paid family leave. There's no childcare. Obviously, like I have a ton of privilege, and like and I have you a still far probably way to feel fall. like you're yeah. piecing it together and barely holding it exactly. together. Exactly. And- like that's the thing that's fucked up. So, but if we had a safety net. Where people and we we believed, and I think that a majority of people, it's like, I think that they, the percentage of people who commit fraud on like SNAP programs, it's, it's like one so percent or something. And it's so it's so low. There's no benefit. I st- I started working in welfare policy, so I used to study this. The levels of fraud are so low because one. It's generally not worth it to risk losing your benefits because right. the welfare system is harsh. Yeah, there is no. I didn't mean to do that. Right. Give it back. You're cut off completely. Right. And so most people aren't willing to take that risk. Two, you know, if you're talking about a TANF check, well, you're, it's not that much money to begin with. Yeah. You know, most people aren't committing fraud for that, you know, little money. And two, the, the or like three, the Systems are so Byzantine anyway that figuring out how to f- defraud them <laughs> is crazy. Diff- it's it's so difficult to st- the paperwork that you have to do yeah. to get on Medicaid. Yeah, what? And then you're going to try to defraud Medicaid when they're also regularly running your info versus the IRS tax base. <laughs> they know things before you know. They'll be like, "Oh, we heard you got a raise." I didn't know I got a raise. Right. Because they're cross-checking with the IRS database. Yeah. Right. And so. But if you just like, if people would allow that fact and then believe that people want to have purpose, they want to, you know, lead lives where they're, you know, of value to communities and to their families, that that's what like makes us happy and feel connected. Yeah. And. And we all get we we all feel like okay, there's I'm not going to be destitute. I'm not going to live on the street. I'm going to get health care if I need it. If I'm addicted, I'm not going to go to jail. I'm going to be right. put in recovery. God, it's amazing to think of what we could accomplish. Yeah, and and it's and the thing is like for all the things that you're saying, they're not free. But the system that we have right now isn't free. Exactly, you pay either way eventually, and I think most. Functioning adults know this. 
just like in life, you pay up front or you pay at the back end, but you're going to pay, you know? And so you either have these inefficient systems or you have bigger systems, you know, that say like universal health care that on the surface looks like a big price tag, but when you dig into it, actually is cheaper. It's more efficient as a system. And most people will see savings, right? But, you know. And collectively, we'll see savings if people aren't, you know, incredibly sick from chronic diseases for decades and decades. Or don't only have access to emergency rooms, which means that, one, what is often preventable has gotten to a stage where now you need more intensive, more expensive care and ER visits are way more expensive than going to a just a doctor. Yeah. Just a doctor's office. Or you think about the impact of prisons and, you know, keeping people in prisons who are perfectly, you know, done some small infraction. Yeah. Or like a dollar bail that they can't find anyone to go and meet. And you think about people languishing there, then not being able to get jobs or losing their jobs. Yeah. And how much more productive would it be if we didn't incarcerate people for dumb, stupid things. Yeah, or things that are... Primarily people of color. Yeah, or things that are, you know, sociocultural or, uh, you know, health-related, right? Like, a lot of people are in prison. I've had people in my family in prison essentially because they got into drugs, Mm -hmm. right? And they get locked up because essentially, they're like you said, they're addicted. Yeah. That's not going to help or, you know, or people are selling small amounts of drugs because there's no jobs around. Right. right? And you have kids and it's easier to it makes more logical sense to sell drugs for however many hours a day and be able to be at home with your kids and taking care of them than working a minimum wage job where you have unpredictable shifts. There's no money for child care. Right. Like. So often things that we label as, quote unquote, bad decisions, we don't know people's lives when they make those decisions. And yeah. most people are trying to make the best choice they can at any given time. Yeah. You know, and and I think that so often we, particularly when people have less privilege or less power or have done something that we stigmatize, we forget that. Most people, like none of us really go out to try to make the wrong decision. Yeah. But your decisions are constrained by the situation that you're in. Yeah. By the options that you have available to you. And you're just trying to make the best choice from a set of choices. But I think the choices in this country, and I think it's sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around, is that the choices, depending on literally where you were born and who you are, the set of choices options that you're making a choice from can be so radically different. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rihanna Gunwright. For more information on the Green New Deal, head to gp.org. And for more related episodes on deepening our understanding of anti-racism, privilege, and trauma, head to the Goop podcast page. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.